0: Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Compared to the rest of the world's oceans, The Mediterranean Sea, which is actually not an ocean, it's a sea, is fairly fairly narrow. It's plenty deep, but it's fairly narrow vertically. It's not very tall across. And so the shipping lanes are pretty crowded. Gordon Macdonald tells a story about a friend of his who was a U.S. Navy submarine captain sailing in the Med back in the 1980s. He said one day while the sub was on duty in the med, many ships were passing overhead on the surface. And the sub had to make several violent maneuvers to avoid collision. The captain was in his cabin, and my friend was the duty officer in charge of giving the commands that kept the sub out of danger. But the sudden and an unusual amount of maneuvers brought the captain up out of his cabin to see what was going on. And he said, is everything all right? He's looking around the bridge. Is everything all right? Yes, sir, my friend said. Captain looks around the bridge. He said, looks okay to me too. And he ducks back down the hatch. McDonald said that simple routine encounter between a naval commander and one of his trusted officers paints a helpful picture of the order in one's private world. The danger of collision lurked all around that submarine, and it was enough to make any alert captain concerned, but that danger was outside. Deep down inside the sub was a quiet place where the boat's destiny was controlled. There was no panic on that bridge, only a calm and deliberate series of commands being carried out by a highly trained and competent crew. So when the commander stepped onto the bridge to make sure all was in order, it was. And that is how he organized his sub. The appropriate procedures were practiced a thousand times when there was no danger. And thus, when it was time for action in a precarious situation, there was no need for panic. When things are in order on the bridge, the submarine is secure no matter what the external circumstances. Well, as as the writer of of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, draws the letter to a close, he talks first about the body of Christ. And then he talks about the home and the heart, the internal world, the private world. Verses 4 through 8 talk about personal behavior and priorities, the morals and the ethics at the center of our private lives. Order them well, and the crises of life probably won't be fatal. Order them poorly, and your ship may sink. So let's read Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 4 through 8. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when the writer is talking about ordering our private world, he begins with instruction to honor marriage. Honor marriage. Verse 4. So we need to have a definition of honor. That is something of great worth or high status, Something to be treasured like a precious gem or respected like high office. That's what it means to honor something. The believers in that day faced two different practices that came from one bad theology that dishonored marriage. The bad theology, there were a number of bad ones, but probably it was an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, one of the essential doctrines of Gnosticism, is that they separate, it separates the body and the spirit. Like the body and the spirit are two different things. Spirit is good, the physical body is evil, or just not important. One of the reasons that John, for example, wrote 1 John was to combat this and to make it very clear, Jesus was a complete human being. He, was, he came in a body. He was not some spirit that inhabited a body for a while and then left. He was a complete human, all the way human, all the way God, completely. As John Stone Street often says, ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. And the bad idea that is Gnosticism generated two bad practices and created two classes of victims. So we'll come to the victims in a minute, but I want to look at the practices first. So you have the idea that is Gnosticism. It generates this practice called asceticism. Asceticism is the voluntary denial of certain pleasures and social pursuits for the purpose of spiritual purity. The voluntary denial of certain pleasures and social pursuits for the purpose of spiritual purity. So it can be food, wine, possessions, sex, all kinds of things, including marriage. Now, asceticism is common in the Bible. We're often told to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow me, said Jesus that's exactly what Jesus said. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's a form of asceticism, is self-denial. So fasting is encouraged, giving away money is encouraged, loving your enemies. These are all forms of self-denial. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, compared the spiritual life to athletic training. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In other words, they deny themselves. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. He's assuming that Christians practice self-control, self-denial. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the New Testament teaches... Asceticism, at some level, it teaches self-denial, but some, probably under the influence of early forms of Gnosticism and other teachings that were around at the time, had taken that asceticism too far and had rejected marriage altogether. And in doing so, they created victims. So the idea was that you could not be spiritually pure and still enjoy sex, even with your spouse. And so the Apostle Paul had to correct that for the Corinthians. We'll look at that in a minute in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But it created victim. It created a victim class. All this emphasis on asceticism for the purpose of spiritual purity created victims. The victims were victims of this legalistic pursuit of spiritual purity by renouncing marriage altogether. The Gnostic idea was that physical pleasure was bad, including the pleasure of the marriage bed. So they were dishonoring marriage by overemphasizing asceticism. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and you've heard that they were preserved by this community called the the Qumran community, the Qumran community that preserved the scrolls were ascetics. They had to renounce marriage and all earthly pleasures and all earthly possessions in order to become a part of that community. People left marriages for this. So their spouses and their children were victims of this overemphasis on this bad idea, asceticism. second problem that Gnosticism created, and it wasn't just Gnosticism, there was Epicureanism and others like it, was licentiousness. Licentiousness is lacking in legal or moral restraint. And that flowed from, again, the Gnostic stream because the Gnostic idea separated body and spirit. In one version of Gnosticism, the body was all bad. So you had to practice asceticism and stay away from the pleasures of the body. In another brand of Gnosticism, you had the spirit was all good and the body was irrelevant. So do whatever you want to with it, sleep with as many people as you want to. And it created an attitude of licentiousness. So they dishonored the marriage bed by inviting any and all bodies into it. If you reflect on what's going on in our culture today, you can actually see Gnosticism still at work because people who have decided that they are not, one gender, that they're not the gender that they were born in are actually saying, my body and my person are different things. So they created a second class of victims and the second class were victims of sexual license and all of its spiritual, emotional, and physical consequences. Now, you're probably bored stiff and I hate to bore a congregation. So why spend that much time explaining all that? It's because it's still happening today and it's not just happening in the transgender movement. It is happening in the church. We are still dishonoring the marriage bed in both directions. So Let me see if I can develop that for you a little bit. We are still telling young, vigorous men and women to live like Gnostic ascetics until they graduate from college or at least until they get their career launched. What we're telling them is, man, you got to have your economic life in order before you get married. And we're telling them to conquer their God-designed desires by, through spirituality alone that's not how Paul handled this problem let's look in 1st Corinthians chapter 7 and read verses 1 through 8 now for the matters that you wrote about so they they are asking Paul questions and one of the questions that they're asking is should we get married because we're concerned that that's gonna mess us up spiritually They were associating sex with impurity, even married sex with impurity. It's good for a man not to marry, but since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong. So why did he say that in verse 3? Because they were saying, okay, we're married, but we shouldn't have sex. Because that's going to make us somehow impure. They were practicing asceticism. Even uh, rest, restraint or denial of sex. Because they somehow thought it made them spiritually impure. And they were wrong about that. The so he gives them this direction. The husband should fulfill his marital duty with his wife. What's he saying? He should sleep with her. The wife should fulfill her marital duty to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other. That's what they were doing. They were depriving each other because they thought they were achieving some sort of spiritual purity by not having sex, even inside the marriage. So don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. What he's meaning there is a set period of time, a limited time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer, if that's what you need to do. But then come together again so that, why? Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all men that were as I am, Paul was single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So what's he doing? If you don't have the gift of celibacy, don't pretend to yourself that you can avoid sin strictly through spiritual effort. You are a body. You are a physical body. You cannot separate spirit and body. You're a whole being, body, soul, and spirit. That's how God made you. Get married. Enjoy the marriage bed, but get married first. That's how we honor it. So what I'm saying is, it is Gnostic to tell young, sexually vigorous people to control their sex drives strictly through spiritual communion. That's not what the Apostle Paul did. He said, get married. And when we do that, we are unintentionally telling them that spirit and body are somehow separate, and they aren't. Now, self-control is always important for the spiritual life. Read Proverbs to your sons. Read the Song of Solomon to your daughters. But we need to stop telling kids that spirit and body are completely separate and that one is more important than the other. Now let's look at the flip side of the coin. He talks about adultery and immorality. Keep the marriage bed pure. In other words, keep other people out of it before you're married and after. Immorality is just the broad term for any kind of sexual activity outside the marriage between one biological male and one biological female. It's the word pornos, where we get our word pornography. So it takes up all of the whole whole picture all of the sexual activity outside of marriage. And he mentions adultery, so he's one way we dishonor marriage is to downgrade its importance in a healthy spiritual life. There are other ways, two other ways. One is specific, one's general. The specific one is adultery, the general one is immorality. Adultery is inviting someone else into the intimacy reserved for husband and wife. It is not cheating. It is not having an affair. It is breaking a covenant you made before God and family and your community. And the issues that we face in sexual ethics today began when we stopped calling it adultery. So think of the word adulterate. It means bringing something foreign into the recipe. You can adulterate anything, and when you do, you ruin it. You know, people adulterate... People adulterate grits with sugar. It's horrible. People adulterate coffee with cream and I know a lot of you like cream in your coffee but it's just horrible. You can adulterate gasoline with water. One of the first things that I do every time you do a pre-flight on an airplane you always have have this special little cup and it's got a needle in the middle of it. It's attached to the bottom and you go underneath the wing on the airplane and you punch it up in this little valve and it opens the valve temporarily and it drains a little bit of gas out of the bottommost part of the gas tank. And you do that because you're looking for water in the gas because the fastest way to bring an airplane down is to have water in the gasoline. So every time you fly, before you get in the airplane, you check to see if the gasoline has been adulterated. When a husband or a wife welcomes someone else into the bed, it ruins the marriage. It adulterates the marriage. So, why does God take this so seriously? I mean, the Romans didn't. The Romans would have a wife, and that was for having legal children that would inherit. But then they would have mistresses. And then, as time went on, the mistresses would have I don't know what you call mistressers, you know, but they would have that. It was just rampant immorality, just exactly like we see in our time today. But marriage, as the Apostle Paul taught, as a picture of Christ in his church, is something so profound and so mystical, we can barely wrap our heads around it. But we can grasp the practical side of it. What happens in a marriage when it's adulterated? Marriage between a biological male and a biological female is the building block of civilization. I know I'm preaching to the choir. It predates ethnicities. It predates nations. It predates the church. And when it's destroyed, bit by bit, piece by piece, so is the family, so is the church, so is the community, so is the nation. So the writer reminds us, don't take these things lightly. God's going to judge us if we participate in immorality. So how do we honor marriage? Well, we honor marriage by doing it well, by teaching our children to do it well. How do you do it well? Let me just be very practical here. These are things that I teach every marriage counseling couple I've ever spoken with. You have to, let me, I have four habits that are listed up here. I actually added a fifth one this morning. Don't worry, I'll get finished on time. Number one, the habit of forgiveness. Every marriage, every Christian marriage needs to start at the cross in the morning and end at the cross at the end of the day. Start at the cross where all of your offenses to God were forgiven. Feed on the forgiveness of Christ that he gave you and never nurture a grudge. Start the day with forgiveness for your spouse. If they were snoring in your ear, if they pulled the blankets off of you, start with forgiveness end the day with forgiveness. Never carry a grudge. Second, learn the twin habits of active listening and assertive communication. Seek first to understand, then be understood. Say what you need. Ask for what you want. Respect each other's wishes. Learn how to communicate. Third, practice conflict resolution. Few people have any experience in this when they get married. They've never been taught how to do it. So practice disagreeing when you're in harmony. When you're feeling great, you're having a great time, you just had a wonderful weekend together, practice disagreeing about the toothpaste. Practice disagreeing about, I don't know, whether you, how you make the bed. Practice disagreeing over something that's irrelevant. Just practice how to negotiate through difficulties with each other. So that when you get to those moments, when you're not doing well, and you're not agreeing, you already know how to do conflict resolution. You already know the steps. Fourth, develop the habit of interdependence. Divorces rarely start with adultery. I mean, that's not how they start. They start when we stop intentionally weaving our lives together, and we build up little grudges that we haven't resolved. And then one day you meet somebody at work or on a trip, and you say to yourself, she understands me better than my wife does. He appreciates me more than my husband does. That's where adultery begins. And then finally, and I added this morning, build a fence around your inner thoughts and your your inner feelings, and only share those with your spouse, or were they trusted person of the same gender that you are? Because those little ways that we, we allow people inside. That's the beginning of adultery. When we allow other people inside our hearts that don't belong there. Build, a, build a shield around your marriage with those practical habits and you will honor marriage. By protecting it before, from immorality before you take your vows and adultery after them. Next he says, practice contentment. Practice contentment. Sexual sins and greed are often linked in the New Testament. We're in 1 Corinthians 8. So if you just back up a page or two and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't even have to back up a whole page. Verses 10 and 11, you can see these things linked I'm going to start in verse 9. I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But you see how he does that? Immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. That's all linked. So he's linking those things. And he goes on, he does it again there in verse 11. But i'm now writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat just trying to make the the point that these things sexual immorality and greed are often linked in the new testament and the reason that they're linked is that there is a root sin that's behind them. And the root sin that behind, that's behind them is covered in the 10th commandment. Does anybody know the 10th commandment? Pop, pop quiz? Yeah. Do not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So I found this definition of coveting. A covetous person pursues selfish aims, whether sexual or financial, without regard to the rights of others. They pursue sexual, selfish aims, whether sexual or financial, without regard to the rights of others. So the practical reminder is this. Watch yourself. Coveting can creep up on you. It's an interesting combination of Greek words. The idea is, let your whole manner of life be one of contentment with what you have. So healthy ambition is one thing. Without it, we we don't reach our potential as human beings. We have to have healthy ambition. But we swim in a sea of discontentment created by clever marketing agencies whose one great purpose is to make us want things that we don't need. And it's not just new things like cars or money or boats. We can even covet old things. We occasionally watch American pickers and it's it's fun, it's interesting to learn where things came from, what their uses were, who made them, what was the history of their use in the country. It's fun to watch the haggling and the bargaining, but every now and then if you watch that show long enough you'll see that they, they've not just come up on a place where a person is a collector of things because they know these things have value and it's like their portfolio for their retirement. You've come up on somebody who just has hordes and hordes and hordes of stuff and they'll tell you, I had to have that and I can't let it go. Those are the people that it's really pitiful to watch because they've coveted and they hold on to things. Why do they do that? I kept asking myself, why do people do that? It's fear. Much of our coveting, I think, comes from fear. It's fear that we aren't loved enough. It's fear that we don't have enough. It's fear that we won't be enough. It's like we must have this thing or this person in our lives to make us complete. And to fill that empty hole down inside of us. But if you remember what the 10th commandment was, do you remember how the 10 commandments start? Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he says before he gives any of the other 10 commandments. What's he saying? I am enough. I am enough. So coveting is a spiritual sickness whose symptoms are greed and immorality. And it's one one great antidote is confidence in God. That's where we go back to the letter to the Hebrews. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am the one who loves you enough. I am the one who will make sure you have enough. I am the one who makes you whole. That's the antidote to coveting. So if you want to order your private world, practice contentment and trust in God. Okay, last point for ordering your private world. Verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, if you imitate their faith, you're imitating, you're following something that's going to last forever. So he's talking about teachers and leaders. And and later on in the passage, he's going to talk about their current teachers and leaders. Here he's talking about teachers and leaders who have passed on, who have died in the faith. Well, if you pay attention to any of the Christian news or sometimes secular news, you'll know that the stories have been filled with... uh, Christian leaders whose ministries have ended in disgrace and whose legacies were lost. There are two men in my mind right now. If I name them, you would know who they are. So I want to tell you about a man who finished well. I mentioned last week my friend Steve Cotter. Steve Cotter led the search team that brought me here in 1997. That's a picture of Steve that I took on the Appalachian Trail when uh, he took Jamie and myself hiking on the trail, this was an elder's retreat. You notice we never did another elder's retreat like that. (laughs) But Steve enjoyed it. Um, Like I said, he died in a bicycle accident in 2004, so most of you never knew him. He was a pharmacist. And if you... uh, If you ever saw the Star Trek series, Steve was our Mr. Spock. The bench out by the playground is dedicated to him. Well, just before or sometime before I had come here, the church had done the Myers-Briggs personality assessment, and that thing was a revelation to Steve. He talked about it as long as I knew him. And... The reason it was a revelation because it helped him. He said, I learned that I am 1% of the population. I mean, not just the church. He said, I'm 1% of the population, period. And it helped him understand himself a lot and be able to get along with people. So there were four things that I learned from Steve and I loved about him. Number one, and I just want to share them with you to, to close Steve was always thorough. He was always thorough. If he led a Bible study, you knew that it would be comprehensive. Because he was driven by a desire for competence. Second, Steve did not fear confrontation. Uh, He was not an emotionally intuitive or empathetic person. And so he didn't have those, those limitations. But he would say what needed to be said to whoever needed to hear about it. And he was really thorough about that as well. The nice way to say it was he didn't suffer fools. Um, The way Phil Ramsey talked about it in his eulogy of Steve was, if you said something stupid, Steve would give you that emotionless Vulcan stare and then eviscerate you with logic. And so it wasn't really pleasant. But one of the best things Steve ever taught me was that as a leader, people will try to triangulate you and get you on their side. So they'll come to you with a problem that they have with someone else and they want you to solve that problem. And he said, so if anybody ever does that to you, stop them and ask, have you talked about this with the person that you have the conflict with as per Matthew 18 and the reconciliation process? And if not, why are you talking to me? And I'll tell you that Using that advice has saved me a world of trouble over the past 24 years, and it's been more healthy for the church. Number three, Steve was the most optimistic person I knew. Things were kind of tough those first few years that I was here, and Steve could always find something positive and optimistic to say. And then fourth, Steve was humble enough, even at 50 years of age, to learn new things. Several very difficult things happened in the couple of years just before he died. And Steve bore up under them and persevered through them and developed a kinder, gentler approach with people. He wasn't quite so Mr. Spock and so tough in his confrontations. And it cost him to do that. It cost him dearly. But he never let bitterness take hold of him. So whenever you sit on that bench out by the playground, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, I started with a submarine story. Let me end with one. On 9 February 2001 about nine nautical miles south of Oahu, Hawaii in the Pacific Ocean, the U.S. Navy Los Angeles-class submarine USS Greenville collided with a Japanese fishery high school training ship, ship Ihimu Maru. And in a demonstration for some VIP civilian visitors The Greenville performed an emergency ballast blow surfacing maneuver, so if you've ever seen Hunt for Red October and how the sub comes blasting up out of the water, that's what they did. But there was a small fishing vessel on top of them and they destroyed it. Within 10 minutes of the collision, the Ihimi Maru sank. Nine of the 35 people on board were killed, four high school students, two teachers, and three crew members. Civilians were present in the Greenville's control room on the bridge at the time of the accident. The U.S. Navy conducted a public court of inquiry. They blamed Captain Scott Waddell and other members of the Greenville's crew. And they dealt non-judicial punishment or administrative disciplinary action to the captain and some crew members. After Waddell had been questioned by the Naval Board of Inquiry, it was decided that a court-martial would not be necessary, but he was forced to retire. So why am I telling you that story? All of us make mistakes. All of us fail from time to time. And we learn some of our best lessons in those failures. But when practical habits like the ones we've talked about are ignored or they aren't developed. And when the private world is disordered, then we have collisions. We call them burnouts, we call them breakdowns, or we call them blow-ups, but they're collisions. And they start deep inside where procedures aren't learned and habits aren't developed and character is not developed. So if you want to live well, order your private world. Honor your marriage, even if you aren't married. Live with contentment. Learn to enjoy what you have and not need what other people have. And then remember your leaders who finished well and imitate their faith. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much for this word and this practical word to us. And I ask you, Father, as we go out the door this morning, that you would help us remember how to apply it, think clearly about how to apply it in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSOBO.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you. We love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.